Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. Have you ever heard the voice of silence? Welcome to episode number 64. Today, I'm talking to Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Rabbi Rami is a very different rabbi because he's so diverse in his understanding of different spiritual traditions. In this conversation, we're going to talk about why don't young Jewish kids getting ready for a bar mitzvah, why aren't they taught Kabbalah? We'll get into his favorite story in the Bible his relationship to the Tao Te Ching, his interesting way of teaching children about death, the work that he's done under the mystic Father Keating, his personal spiritual practice, and my favorite part, we're going to explore the mystical side of Jesus the Christ. Rabbi, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. You know, I once heard you say, no matter what name you choose, whether it's God, Tao, Source, whatever, you said, no matter what name you choose, it's going to be wrong. (laughs) Because God, or whatever you name it, is really a verb. I agree with myself. (laughs) (laughs) Right? God is a verb, and any noun we choose, or proper noun that we choose, is, is going to be wrong, because it, it misses two things. One, it misses the fact that God is a verb, God is dynamic, God is active, and you can't label it, even with the word God. And two, as soon as you put a label on it, you've reduced it to some, I don't know, the, the story that goes with the label. So I am a firm believer in the truth of the opening verse of the Tao Te Ching that says, you know, Lao Tzu says, the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. And the corollary to that in Judaism is that, to me, the Bible is, is story, not history. But there's a story in the book of Exodus where Moses encounters God at the burning bush and he asks God, what's your name? And God gives two names, both of them sort of verby. <laughs> the first one uh, is Ehia Asher Ehia, which most English Bibles translate as I am what I am, which is not very dynamic, or I am what I'm becoming, which is closer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word in Hebrew is Ehia, and it's the first person singular in, in a future tense. So it's sort of the eyeing of the universe. But it's, it's so abstract that in the story, God says, oh, you know what, and I'm paraphrasing, this is not what it actually says, but God says, wait, here's another one that maybe is a little bit easier. And then God gives uh, Moses the four-letter name of God, Y-H-V-H in English, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh in Hebrew, which we render, not translate, we render as Lord, but that's the word Lord is antithetical to the actual Hebrew. The Hebrew is another verb. It's the verb to be, and it's in the future imperfect form again. So it, it's sort of like um, 
well, I usually translate it as awkward as it sounds, as the happening, happening, as all happening. Right. So, you know, that to me is God. And then the third, just to bring in another religion, is St. Paul's definition of uh, the divine in the book of Acts, where he defines God as that in whom we live and move and have our being. I mean, that you don't get more Taoist than that. So no name actually captures the reality because it's just too big and too dynamic. And every name just sort of ruins the very, the experience because now you're trying to experience a concept as opposed to the actual thing happening in, with, and as you. We're swimming in it. And when people put names on it, people get caught up in language. When you said this, it reminded me of something I heard uh, Gautama, the Buddha say, in a scripture somewhere, where he said, that's not a river, that's rivering. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's not a microphone. That's microphoning. But this is the same reality, Ramying and Kevining. So right, that's, right. It, it'd be great if we could eliminate all nouns and replace them with gerunds. Mm. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the Tao Te Ching, you know, in my, in my experience, that's the best spiritual book I've ever read because of the simplicity of it. So incredibly simple <laughs> and precise. I agree. And I, I want to bring, I want to shine the light on the fact that you're not the average rabbi. You're talking about the Tao Te Ching. You're talking about Buddha. I see a cross behind you right now. I see over there to the left of, or to the right of you that resembles something Zen. Yeah, it's a, an Enso circle. You are a different kind of rabbi. You are very diverse in your understanding. I'm very eclectic. How did you get this way, <laughs> rabbi? How did you get this way? What What happened to you? You know, from you know bar mitzvah on. Yeah, so my bar mitzvah, and I, I grew up in a modern Orthodox home. My bar mitzvah was very serious and completely meaningless to me. Um, it, it Judaism was basically, uh, you know, sort of ancestor worship and 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 just feel, filial piety, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you did it because that's what you did. Uh, but I didn't understand anything about Judaism, and I really wasn't interested in none of the rabbis I worked with. Who were, they were all, re and, and I mean this, they were all dedicated, devoted men. At that time, they were all men who really probably felt they wasted their lives trying to turn 13-year-olds into serious Jews. It, just, right. you know, it wasn't going to happen. Right. But in high school, I had two teachers in my junior year and senior year in high school, two teachers who went on a, it wasn't a sabbatical, but something like that. They, were, they, they went on this journey to India, some program, and they came back and they started teaching world religion. Mm. And I took it when I was in my junior year of high school and it just blew me away. Mm. I was taken by Buddhism and I started studying Zen in a way that I thought was serious. Uh, later, when I moved on to college, I actually worked with a Zen master, and then it was really serious. And mm. if you screwed up, they hit you with a stick. You know, so. Navy SEALs right there, with spirituality. <laughs> <laughs> so so that, was, that was pretty intense. Uh, but my experiences with meditation were 
always just outside any of these boxes, any of these isms or ideologies. And, you know, the truth is I was experiencing it. And it's chutzpahdik to say that, you know, I experienced the truth. But the reality I experienced was one that was unnameable and certainly not reducible to a specific religious tradition. So I'm Jewish. I don't have any problem with being Jewish. There's a lot about being Jewish that I'm very excited about. Uh, but I've also been initiated into the Ramakrishna order of Vedanta Hinduism. I studied for many, many years on you know, Zen cushions. I have Sufi teachers. I have a, well, he's deceased now, but I, was, I studied for a very wow. long time with uh, Father Thomas Keating. I mean, I'm just interested in all these things. And Thomas but, Keating, that name sounds familiar. Wasn't he a Christian mystic? Yeah. Thomas Keating died a couple of years ago. He mm -hmm. was, along mm -hmm. with Father Basil Pennington, the founder of Centering Prayer Movement in Christianity, where they took medieval Christian meditation practices and brought them into a modern setting. So I don't do Centering Prayer. I was never interested really in Centering Prayer. I have my own meditation practice as a teacher. Father Thomas was amazing. I was with him since uh, 1984 until he died a couple of years ago. Wow. So all, all these things just pointed me to some reality that was bigger than any religion allows. Right. And, and, but usually when somebody experiences all these different traditions, they don't necessarily become a rabbi. <laughs> I was on a Zen retreat with uh, Joshu Suzaki Roshi, who is my, my Zen teacher. I'm familiar. And, you know, for all of his horrible hashtag me too problems, and so many of these people have them. So I, I didn't know of them at the time. I didn't know that at the time, but subsequent to his death, I discovered all these things that, you know, he had uh, real issues. Mm -hmm. But as a teacher, I, you know, at the time I knew him, he was very helpful, but very intimidating. And at one of these sessions, uh, it was near the end, and he literally backed me against a wall. And, and I'm, you know, I'm shrinking now <laughs> in my 70s, but I was like six foot, six foot tall, and he was much shorter than me. And he just, you know, got closer and closer and backed me up against a wall. And he knew, because this is my senior year of college, he knew I was planning to go to graduate school for Zen Buddhist uh, academic training to train in, in Buddhism uh, at, at the university. And he was outraged. He said, that was a disaster. You can't learn Buddhism that way. And he said, don't go to, to graduate school, move to the monastery and live with him there. And I'd been there. I knew what it was like. It's not for me. And I just blurted out, you know, Roshi, I can't do that. I'm going to be a rabbi. <laughs> and then, that was news to me. You know, it was, it was just, I, I, I thought it was just a way to get him off my case. But he said, oh, good, be rabbi, be Zen rabbi. I said, okay, I'll be a Zen rabbi, but oh, I'm gosh. not going to the monastery. He was absolutely right about graduate school. I was looking for what I had as an undergraduate where I worked with a Zen, uh, not as, I work with him, but I also worked with a Pure Land Buddhist priest who was mm. both a PhD and clergy and, it's all about a living Buddhism. And what I found in the seminars in graduate school was a dead Buddhism. And I, I dropped the major right away and switched over to Judaism. Uh, 
where it wasn't more alive, but I wasn't looking for, for enlightenment. I was just looking for, you know, a career path. So I ended up getting a master's in Judaic studies and then went on to become a rabbi because I told the Zen master that I would do that. But, you know, I'm doing my best to be a Zen rabbi, whatever the heck that is. It's an unusual story. Um, I, I have a similar path. I had a bar mitzvah, didn't understand it, didn't want to do it. Tons of pressure, right? At 12 years old, you're learning this and you have to put on a quote unquote performance in front of friends and family. Yeah, yeah, it's intense. I was sick of friends calling me Jew boy and dreidel boy at school. It's a lot for a 12-year-old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, by the time I got to 18, I denounced it. Mom wasn't happy. Dad was from a Protestant family, though. So I had Christmas and Hanukkah. I had both spoiled extra mm -hmm. gifts. And I just didn't get it, Rabbi. I just didn't get it. And it wasn't until my late 20s, I started learning things like Buddhism and the pineal gland and enlightenment and things of this nature. And it's, you start getting it. And one of the things I came across in my studies was Kabbalah. And I said to myself, man, if they taught me Kabbalah when I was 12, <laughs> maybe I would have stuck with this Jewish tradition thing. My gosh. Why aren't they teaching Kabbalah? Yeah, so I, I have a couple of thoughts on that because I've, I've taught, you know, uh, when I was a synagogue rabbi, we had, you know, bar and bat mitzvah training and mm -hmm. we didn't teach Kabbalah. I, I think that, that Kabbalah is uh, really for an adult. I mean, if you really want to get into Kabbalah, you have to be uh, literate in the Bible and, and you have to know enough Hebrew to be able to play with the language and the numerology and all this stuff. There probably is a way to use it with kids. Uh, but when I was in the synagogue world, I, I didn't know how to do that. And I could never figure that out. I have a couple of thoughts about, you know, being 12 and studying for a bar bat mitzvah. A, I think they should move it off to your much later. You're too young. Mm -hmm. uh, so 16 to 18 would be a choice I would make. And then second, I would make it training for a vision quest. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't, you know, just to, to memorize a passage of the Hebrew Torah and to recite it back and to give some, it's not a canned speech, but it's usually pretty safe speech about the Torah portion that doesn't really go anywhere because you don't even know what to do with it as a 13-year-old. And, and but, I still know some of it right now, and I don't know why. Baruch <laughs> yeah. Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. That's where it ends. Well, that's it. The beginning of almost every prayer. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, if it, if it were a vision quest, but I had this idea to create a vision quest where the kids um, spent a year studying mystical stuff, studying meditation, all within a Jewish context. It's all in Judaism, studying the, the ethics that flow from Jewish mystical teachings and then taking them out into the desert because Judaism is a desert religion and go out into the desert. You know, when Jesus um, tries to make sense out of his baptism, he goes into the desert and he's Jewish. So he goes into the desert to take kids out into the desert and to teach them how to have to, to invite a vision uh, the way you know Jacob has visions and the you know, prophets had visions so to, to take them out and they'd be monitored you can't just leave a kid out in the wilderness you know for a week but there'd be adults who would who were there in case but 
really to train them to be out there alone in the desert and to see what happens. Because my experience in the desert, and I wasn't 12, but I was, I don't know, maybe 19 was my first Sinai alone experience. And something happens. I mean, the, the geography of the desert is, it, it, to jump from one, from geography to, to something more abstract, the geography of a desert is empty mind, shunya, it's emptiness. That's right. And my experience in the desert, and now I, I have the same experience daily, my experience in the desert was that you started to hear something. Uh, I didn't hear voices. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't hear that. But you hear, I heard this, well, sort of a, 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 a hum or a hiss, or a, it's, it's hard to define. I've heard it. I've heard yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, in Hinduism, it's called nada yoga, sound yoga. Yes. In Judaism, it's called koldamama daka, the thin, the fragile voice of silence. Yeah, it reminds me of almost like a radio switching, like something like that. This morning, I get up, my normal thing, four thirty in the morning. I, I, I wash up a little bit, and I sit, I chant, I work the mala beads, and then I and I sit in silence. It's very quiet in the house at that time. And I just listen. I mean, that's the core teaching of Judaism is, you know, Shema Yisrael, listen. And so I listen. I listen to whatever I can hear as far out as I can hear it, which isn't much at 4.30 in the morning. But then I start listening, not inward and outward, but just listening, sort of passive listening. And then I can hear that sound. And I'm told, and I'm agreeing with it only because it's romantic and cool. <laughs> I'm told it's the, you know, the, the sound before Om. It's that primal sound of the universe happening or the divine happening or, you know, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, I'll, I'll settle with the, the fragile voice of silence um, that you get from uh, the Book of Kings. So if you could train kids to go out in the desert and have that experience and then to have that experience lead them to the realization of their own divinity, because everything is God, and then to have that lead them to the core ethical command of Judaism uh, from the Bible's point of view, which is uh, Genesis 12, 3, be a blessing to all the families of the earth, human and otherwise. Boy, that's a bar mitzvah. That's a bar mitzvah. Yes. So I would have stuck around for that. Yeah, I would have, I would have been enticed by that too. But when I tried to <laughs> actually uh, implement it, Taking kids into the desert is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. But when we're silent and we can make the language stop, that's when we invite something to happen. If you don't get attached to the language, the, yes. you know, the chatter, if, if I have to stop all the chatter first, I probably could spend the entire time trying not to, to have the chatter. But if I can allow the chatter to be just part of the noise, uh, of everything else that I'm hearing, I always hear that sound. I don't want to say behind it because it's it's, it's uh, non-local. It's I don't know where it's coming from. It's not in or out or behind or it's just this amazing sound. And I just focus on listening to that. It's very comforting to rest in that sound. The audible life stream. Some people might yeah, call it. Yeah, right. That's nice. Yeah. When we get this silent, aren't we inviting the uh, 
what's called the Shekhinah in Kabbalah, the connect? Yeah, well, it, that may be what we're hearing. So I'm very biased when it comes to Shekhinah. My, my, you know, I believe, just what we said at the top of the show, that God is the happening, happening is all happening. God is everything. And as such, God has no form, no gender, right? But at the same time, in Hinduism, they talk about this concept of Ishwara, your personal experience of deity as, as a person. So it's not that God is a person, but lots of us, either because we crave it or because it just happens to us, lots of us experience God in some kind of form. Mm. So I have a deep respect for Buddhism, a deeper respect philosophically for Taoism, but the language of Hinduism suits me better uh, when I'm trying to explain you know, Judaism and Buddhism, uh, Hinduism language helps. And, and in Hinduism, you have the notion of uh, Nirguna Brahman, the, the Brahman without form, and then Sadguna Brahman, the Brahman with form. And the form that appears to me is Shekhina. Shekhina is a woman. Uh, she has many names in the Jewish tradition, but she is the first happening of the divine. We learn that in, in the book of Proverbs, verse uh, chapter 8. In verse uh, eight, uh, chapter 8, 20, verse 22, she just starts talking. And she says she is the first of, of the manifestings of the divine. And in Proverbs, she's called Chachma, wisdom, or Sophia in the Greek. So my morning practice, I mean, I've written two books on this and a third one in the works. Uh, I experience the divine mother as my Ishwara. And she's my gateway to the non-gendered divine. But every morning, I, I'm chanting to her. I'm working a mala, uh, you know, the mala beads, uh, reciting chachma over and over and over again with a variation on the Ave Maria that I was taught uh, in a mystical experience in Nazareth in Israel or Palestine. It, it is the Shekhinah. It's the sound of the Shekhinah. It's the presence of the, the Shekhinah. Uh, and I think that... That's what we're experiencing when we, ex mm. when we experience that sound. Mm. You just mentioned formlessness. That's key in the understanding of this whole, this whole shebang that we're in. When I think back to the famous thing that God said in the Bible, you know, in uh, Genesis, uh, make man in my image, right? I say to myself, well, if you're formless, that means we're really formless. People mostly have the concept of, well, he, he was a man, and that's right. the guy in the sky, and we look like him. But well, that's, the, that's the trap of language, right? Yes. We refer to God as he, which is yes. wrong. Yes. And, we, and just the way you translate it, you know, uh, let us make man in our image, the Hebrew doesn't, doesn't say that. The word for man and woman comes later in the text. The word that, that is used in that uh, Genesis 1.26 verse, it's uh, Adam, which comes from the word Adama, earth. So God says, let us make the earthling in our image. Mm. And then it says male and female were created. So if God is, if we say God is formless, and this is again why I like the Hindu way of doing it. If we say God is formless, then God is not non-dual. God is not everything because formless is opposed to form. So God is formless and form at the same time. So yeah, God takes 
on infinite form, you, me, the microphone, you know, uh, the computer lamps, uh, you know, if, if it's, if it's, if it exists, it's God, um, because God is existing as all existent. So, um, what, what we have to do, this should be Judaism's mission. Yes. To, uh, awaken us, or in, in Hebrew, the word is to return us to Shuva, to return us to our, uh, to the consciousness, our, the awareness that we are and everything else is divine. And when you have that, when you realize we're all manifestings of the same phenomenon, the same mm -hmm. dynamic happening, then being a blessing becomes axiomatic. You can't do anything else. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, many years ago, I was teaching in Amsterdam. And I was in a, an apartment just up the street from Anne Frank house. I got a call from the people who were hosting me. And they said there was a rabbi who, they said, flew in from Israel and he wanted to, to meet me. How he knew I was there, I have no idea. But I said, okay. So I never met this guy before. He walks in. I offered, you know, tea, sit down, talk. He didn't sit down, didn't take off his coat. Didn't, he just stood there and said, I have one question. He goes, what's the heart of Judaism? It was very Zen-like, you know, like, what's the sound of one hand clapping? And, and without thinking, because if I thought, I couldn't say a thing. But without thinking, two words just came out. And I said, it's teshuva and tikkun. Teshuva, returning to your true nature as a divine happening. And tikkun, healing the world from that place by being a blessing to all the families of the earth. And he said, I like the answer. And he left. Hmm. So... I like the answer too. <laughs> I can't take credit for it because yeah. I didn't think of it. I just verbalized it. Yeah. And, but I, it stayed with me and I think it's, it's absolutely true. Mm. Because you're so diverse in your understanding, is, is that why you're not a Hasid in the Hasid? Uh, no, I tried to be a Hasidic. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I was at one time, still am, I guess, sort of taken by the whole Hasidic ideal, my romanticized vision, version of what Hasidism is. And I tried when I was studying in Israel for the first time in the 70s. Uh, I really wanted to become part of, uh, of the Chabad school of Hasidism because it's, it's very intellectual and very mystical at the same time. Mm. And I went to live at their village, Kvar Chabad, in Israel, and I lasted like two to three minutes. I mean, I got there, I said, whoa, this is too intense. This would be like going to the, you know, to Saki Roshi's monastery. It was, no, I don't like boot camp. I'm not really into this. So I couldn't do the lifestyle. I just, it was too rigid, too strict. When I started working with my own Rebbe, Reb Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, who's from that school, the Chabad Hasidic tradition, but who modernized it. When I started working with him, I felt at home because he himself was like this. He was into all these other religions as well as psychedelics and stuff that I don't know anything about. But mm -hmm. he was a real pioneer in, in spiritual exploration. And he made it, he, he, I found a place of, of welcome and comfort with him because he and I were, we could both borrow from a million different traditions to explain what we were talking, what we were experiencing. Right. And, and uh, when I became a chassid of his, I adopted a lot of the trappings. Of, uh, you know, so I, I, I wear only black and white. Now he didn't wear a striped shirt, but you know, I, I, I dress a lot uh, 
closer to Chabad. And I've always kept kosher. I mean, I grew up that way. I still, I'm a vegetarian, so it's easy, but mm-hmm. I still do, I still keep kosher. I have my own version of Shabbat. So I keep the core rituals of Judaism and I study the texts all the time, daily, because I find so much value in them. I'm lucky in that I was trained how to unpack them. You know, not just in rabbinical school, which is not the focus of rabbinical school, but with all the other mystics that I've worked with, Jewish and non-Jewish, they've taught me how to, uh, some of them taught me how to use the Hebrew in a mystical way, which allows all kinds of depth to arise in the text that wouldn't have come up otherwise. And some just how to experience the text in a way that allows you to get to the heart of it without being hung up on the linguistics alone or the cultural limitations that the text carries. In 2012, I went to an ashram and I didn't even know what an ashram really was. I just learned about it and I went. Where? In New York. Sri Brahmananda, who uh, passed away in, I want to say, early 90s. And so I'm there and I met a guy who was different. I mean, I, I just knew in five minutes, I'm like, there's something off about this guy. And come to find out, he was a mystic. He uh, worked there. He was doing seva. And he became my mentor for seven years. I'd email him and, you know, he'd answer whatever questions I had. You know, this is a far cry from the 12-year-old that doesn't want to do his bar mitzvah. Right. And to come across a, a, a mystic who didn't pronounce that he was a mystic. Nobody knew. He walked around. He didn't. He didn't really talk unless you spoke to him or hi bye. Later on, he would describe himself as a sober mystic. He was very low key, doing his own thing. At the time, I'm like, "What the heck is a mystic?" Like, I'm from Connecticut. We got Mystic Pizza. We we got Mystic Aquarium. <laughs> you got Mystic Connecticut. Unless, so. um, like, what what's going on here? And I was introduced to this whole thing. And my entire 30s has been this, this, this mystical journey. And so I, I, you know, I heard you say mystic a few times. Isn't it interesting that someone can be a mystic and not even have a tradition? They don't have to be Jewish or Christian or Sufi or Zen. Yeah. So, so for me, a mystic is a person who isn't satisfied with a secondhand experience or understanding of reality. A mystic wants to, like the Bible says, taste and see. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, a direct, like in Zen, a direct perception of reality mm-hmm. without, you know, words and concepts. It seems to me that you can have mystics who start in a tradition and mystics who are not attached to a tradition. Mm-hmm. But in the end, mystics can't be limited to a tradition. But I, I'm not, I don't call myself a Jewish mystic. If I were going to say I was a mystic, I would just have to be a mystic without an adjective. Um, because it's, it's too limiting. You could say, you know, if, if you call someone like a Christian mystic, it's someone whose practice uh, that leads them to the mystical awareness is from the Christian tradition. I suppose you, know, you could do that. Mm. But the experience itself isn't Jewish, Christian, Buddhist. I mean, if, if you have, this is my bias, but if you have Christian mystical experiences that are just within the Christian box, then you're having maybe a deep Christian experience, but that's not experience of reality, which is fundamentally 
without a box, the Tao that cannot be named. Mm. I, I was once with, um, well, when I first started studying with Father Thomas Keating in 84, he invited uh, 12, what he called mystics, contemplatives anyway, from 12 different traditions to live with him in his monastery for a week at a time. Every year we went. And the whole idea was we would have lengthy periods of meditation, each person doing her own thing. Mm -hmm. And then there'd be times of um, dialogue where we would talk about our experience. And the first rule of the first rule of this group was don't talk about the group, but the first rule he had was you can't use language formulations like we Jews believe X or we Catholics believe Y. He says, I don't care. He says, what do you experience? Not what do you believe? What do you know from your right. experience? Right. And it became to me abundantly clear that everyone was having the same experience or everyone was having the same non-experience. You know, they were all dropping their egoic self and their Christian self and their Jewish self all fell away. And whatever was left is what they tried to share when they came back into their embodied form. Mm. But whatever that um, experience was, I think it was, it is unlabelable and universal. We all have the capacity to experience it. Again, language is a problem because there's nobody there to experience it. If I'm, if I'm in meditation, I'm going, whoa, this is an amazing experience. I'm just hallucinating. But there are moments when you're just not there. I mean, even, even maybe for someone who's had it, it makes no sense. But it's very difficult to describe. Mm. Yeah, language is very limited. <laughs> yeah. Earlier, you mentioned you had a, a really deep connection to Taoism. What is it about Taoism, maybe Lao Tzu, that you're connected with? But the Tao Te Ching, the 81 poems, just speak to the nature of reality and how best to navigate it. But you don't have to really believe anything. You just have to observe reality as it is. Yeah. And the practice for me that stems from my interest in Taoism is uh, a Qigong. Mm -hmm. So I've studied, I'm not a Qigong teacher, but I've studied Qigong. I have a Qigong teacher. Learning the movements of Qigong to what sort of surrender your body to the flow of the energy, the flow of chi mm. is a very powerful thing to do. In, in before COVID, when I would run retreats at retreat centers, you know, face-to-face -face stuff, we would always start every morning with Qigong. In fact, I took a group to Israel wow. a couple of years ago. And every morning I brought my, my you know, my Qigong teacher and friend with me. Uh, he's a Qigong teacher, he's a Buddhist uh, lineage holder, and he's an Episcopal priest. So he took a, wore a lot of hats on this trip. But every morning while we traveled through Israel, we were on the rooftops of hotels, we were on mountaintops doing Qigong. And it was really powerful. Mm. Okay, so we, we talked about being a mystic. I want to ask you a question about the most popular man that walked earth. Was Jesus a mystic? Yeah, I, I would say yes, I'm, without hesitation. I would say Jesus is a mystic, defining a mystic yeah. as somebody who wants a direct experience of the divine. I think that his realizations come out. You never know if he said any of the things that the Bible says he said, but let's assume 
if, if he didn't say them, then somebody said them, and the somebody who said them is, is the mystic. But crediting Jesus with, uh, especially the stuff he says in the gospel according to John, you know, when he says, um, you know, I and the Father are one, you know, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. I mean, this kind of non-dual insight is absolutely the mystic insight. Mm. And then when he says, to, to love your neighbor as yourself as a direct outgrowth of the unity or the non-duality of the divine. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing. We're all part of this singular uh, dynamic reality and we have to love all of its manifestings. So I think it was absolutely a mystic. I think he was also, hmm. if you want to take it a little further. Keep going. In, in the Jewish tradition, um, this is from Martin Buber, the philosopher Martin Buber in the mid 20th century. But Martin Buber said he was... Uh, a Lamed Vovnik. So a Lamed Vovnik, the word means 36, 36er. Uh, there's this teaching from the Talmud, uh, Rabbi Abaye, about 1600 years ago, sort of spilled the beans. This was a secret. And, you know, the Talmud is just this layer upon layer of just rabbis babbling on. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I don't know what they were talking about, but all of a sudden he just blurts this out. And he says there are always 36 people. That's the Lamed Vav idea. There's always 36 people on the planet who are in the presence of the Shekhinah, you know, the, the divine feminine, which is God happening as all happening. So there's always 36 people. So in the Jewish tradition, there, what grew up out of that was this notion that at any given moment, there are 36 people on the planet, self-realized, or, or you know, realized, God-realized individuals right enlightened yeah <clears throat> right enlightened individuals who are doing this you know this blessing work and because they're there the universe or the the uh, human civilization doesn't collapse under the weight of its own ignorance and arrogance and greed so traditionally the idea is that it's a fixed number of 36 so you're born one of these guys and you die it can be men women right but uh, and, and then when one dies, another, you know, baby girl, Lamed Vavnik, is born. Huh. So there's always a new one coming every generation. Wow. But what happens when some, they're supposed to be hidden. They're called hidden saints. And when they're outed, they're usually in big trouble because people don't, for all the love they exude, people become very frightened of them. So yeah. um, you can talk about, I mean, what happens to Jesus is, you know, he's outed, his mother outs him in the you know, wedding feast at Cana when she's, you know, says, you know, my, my kid will take care of the, the lack of wine. Mm -hmm. uh, but every time he does a miracle, almost every time he says, you know, don't tell anybody, just go. And they always go, yeah, yeah, I won't tell anybody. And then they tell everybody and he ends up being crucified. Uh, you get, um, Mansur al-Halaj in the Islamic tradition, who had some mystic experience, and he runs out and he says, Al-Haq, I am truth. No, no, he doesn't mean me, Mansur, I'm, I'm God. He means the I am that we mentioned earlier is truth, and, and that I am is me and you and everything else. Mm. So when, the same with, with Jesus, when he says, I am the way, the life, the way, the truth, the life. He's not talking about from a mystical perspective. He's not talking about Jesus 
the son of Mary, he's talking about the I am consciousness, which he's realized as a mystic. And in every religious tradition, when someone is outed this way, uh, something bad happens to them, except in India, where everyone goes, oh, very good, you finally got it, you know? So Jesus's problem was, he, he, he said he was the, the way, the truth, and the life in Israel. He, if he had said it in, you know, Delhi, he would have been applauded. In Israel, he was like, what? That's madness. Right. A lot of people miss that point that he was speaking to Jews of that era when Buddha was talking to Hindus of his era and it, different audiences. It's just like being a public, you're a public speaker, I'm a public speaker. Rule number one, know your audience. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, the translations, if you will, kind of get mixed up with the language and everything, don't they? Because they're parables. Well, they're parables and, they're, and like you said, they're translations. And, yeah. And what Jesus, I mean, we don't know what Jesus said because Jesus spoke Aramaic. And we don't have an Aramaic translation. People try to reconstruct, but they're going backwards from the Greek and trying to imagine what the Aramaic was. Hmm. But when we read the Bible, the New Testament, let's say, or the Gospels in Greek, even that's not what he said, but that's what his followers, uh, Greek-speaking followers, understood him to say. That's much closer to the truth than, than our English. And the Greek is often, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so I really can't speak to the details here. When you read about uh, Jesus in the context of the Gospels, you have to read it through the eyes of someone who knows the Greek so they can say, look, he didn't say what the English says he said. You know, it's like in the Hebrew, it doesn't say Lord it, when referring to God. It just doesn't. It says yod heh vav heh, and that means the verb happening. And someone else put Lord in there, and everyone just translates it that way. But that's just a habit, not the text. So everything gets confused when we think the English is the actual, uh, the original text. Uh, so you got to know Greek, you got to know Hebrew, you got to know Sanskrit, <laughs> Pali, I mean, there's Chinese. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they kind of piece it together. The interesting thing is how, you know, there's such a big gap in his story. And all of a sudden he kind of comes back at 30 and boom, here's my ministry. Right. What do you, what was he doing before that? Do you think he was traveling with the Essenes? Did he go to India? Did he learn about he Krish, was, Krishna? I think, and I think he was in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe he was in grad school in India. You know? I mean, there's all these all these theories. Yeah, there there is something called the Jesus Sutras in India, mm. uh, which are ancient stories about Jesus living in India. I don't know, maybe the Essenes, but maybe he goes to India, because they're trying to say he gets his wisdom from someone else or somewhere else. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that he was a mystic, I mean, a natural born mystic, yeah. and that all mystics ultimately say the same thing. Yeah. And why not just credit him for having the ability to, to have that experience and then translate it in you know, in his own way. Why, why does he have For to his learn audience. For, For his, his audience. audience. Why does he have to learn it from somewhere else? Right. I mean, maybe he did, or maybe he experienced it and then went off. I mean, I had my first experience of this kind of thing when I was 16. And then I went off to study to, 
uh, with with Buddhists and Hindus and, and Jewish, you know, all these people, to to help me understand what I was experiencing. Mm. Maybe that's what happened. But yeah, it's the lost years of Jesus. And one of the great things you can do with that is you can invent a whole, you know, fan fiction to fill in those those lost years. What I want to know is where has he been since he was resurrected? Right. Now, you know, we could use him. He should come back. <laughs> People wouldn't know what to do. They're too busy looking at their phones. <laughs> well, maybe he would come back as an app. <laughs> What's your favorite? story or most meaningful story from the Bible that resonates with you? Hmm. I like the story of Elijah and the still small voice. So very quickly, Elijah is being hounded by uh, his enemies. They don't like his message. And he takes refuge in a cave and he's in the cave and the voice of God, he hears the voice of God. And the voice says, why are you here, Elijah? And so Elijah starts to pour his heart out. Ah, I'm trying to do what you want from him. And the people hate me and they're chasing me around. They want to kill me, blah, blah, blah. It's all this whining. You know, it's like he's talking to a therapist. And then God says, well, go outside the cave. And then he has this experience where he sees that there's a, a, a great fire and a great earthquake and a great uh, tornado. And he looks into these elements. And the Bible says, and God was not in the fire or in the earthquake or in the tornado. And then after the passing of those three things, he hears the kol Daka, this thin, fragile voice of stillness or voice of silence that you and I were talking about you know, a while ago, that, that primordial sound. And then he, again, he hears, uh, why are you here, Elijah? And he didn't get it. I mean, the first time he thought it was an egoic question. Why am I here? I'm here because I'm threatened. After experiencing these, you know, the fire represents, you know, uh, emotions and anger and you know, they, they, all these, the three things are, are all about things that happen to us as we are, um, what would you call it? I guess being, being purged or purified in order to have the experience of this sound and then he has the sound experience. But when he hears the voice saying, why are you here? He goes right back to the egoic. It's this sad story about a guy who's given the opportunity to completely awaken and he can't. I like the story. because I think oh, maybe there's hope for me yet. Maybe I can do it. But his answer should have been, um, you know, why are you here, Elijah? He should have said, I'm here to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. But he didn't. He couldn't because he was still trapped in the egoic. Right. Uh, so it's, I, I think it's a powerful story. So if very, I had to pick one, that's the one. Very much so. Because once we gain this understanding and knowledge, we then may develop a desire to become enlightened, self-realized. And then the chase switches over. It switches from... <laughs> fame and fortune and, and women or whatever it is over to the <laughs> to the spiritual and now we're chasing our tail but in a different way right in a different way um there, there's a story about a famous hasidic rebbe you know, hasidic guru i can't remember his name 
which is too bad. But, you know, his disciple came back from years of being with this guy and his friend said, well, what did you learn? And the guy said, I learned how to tie and untie my shoes. Mm. You know, I learned how to be in the moment. Mm. You know, the Zen, when hungry, eat, when tired, sleep, but above all, don't wobble. I learned how to tie and untie my shoes. Mm. And that's what this guy is like. You just hang out with him and he exudes this compassion and this wisdom mm. and, you know, you're just, you're just with him. Right. And that's, he's not, yeah, he's not teaching any system. That's exactly how I felt when I met uh, the mystic back in 2012. He wasn't on the circuit. He just was just there. And, and looking back now, I feel like um, that feeling that I was experiencing back then, I was sort of looking into a mirror mm. of the possibility. It, it's so present that nothing bothers you. There's no anger. There's no greed. Yeah. There's, well, there's I don't no know anything about that, but I, I would say, you know, in my, in my own case, yeah, there's anger. Yeah. There's greed. There's every emotion, good and bad. And I just try to observe them and not be trapped by them. Be the witness. Yeah. To be the witness. Cause if I try to get rid of them, they always win. <laughs> I mean, there are practices that work for me. And if someone asked me, what do you do? I could teach that. They're just, placeholders for an experience that I can't control. So, you know, I sit every morning. Um, like I said, I get up at 4.30 and I'm in the chair or, or you know, doing the meditation uh, within 20 minutes and I'm just sitting there and doing the chanting, doing all these things as a way of keeping me sitting there and just being present to see if anything happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then that sound arises. And then if I can just listen to that rather than do mantra or anything else, there are moments completely out of my control, but there are moments when I'm not there. You know, just pff, Rami's gone. And then Rami comes back. And then I actually, then I go for a walk. Um, come back and take a shower after that. But, you know, I, I, I'm gone and then I'm back. But I don't want to make a big deal out of being gone or coming back. Um, because anything we say, any, anytime we make it special, mm. we've missed it. Mm. Now, it's, it's not extraordinary. It's the ordinary. The extraordinary thing is, is that we've made, we don't get it because it's so ordinary. We're not, right. you know, we're ignorant of it. And it's, it? But the reality is happening right here. Yeah, that's a nice gem right there. Mm. Uh, don't make it special. You've done quite a few funerals as a rabbi, haven't you? Yeah. Also, I believe mentioned that you're in your 70s now? Yeah. Okay. What have you learned and experienced about death? Of all the things that, that I got to do as a rabbi, you know, a congregational rabbi, baby namings and circumcisions and bar and bat mitzvahs and all this, I liked the dying stuff the best. And that's because there was less BS mm. in that setting. The, the existential reality of death can be an incredible um, window to, to truth. And, you know, I don't believe in life after death. Mm -hmm. It's not that there's nothing is uh, the analogy is that the Hindu ocean and the wave analogy so, you know, you and I are waves of the ocean. When a wave hits the rocks, you know, it dies, but
but it just goes back in, in, into the, the ocean. ocean. Right. And the ocean never waves the same wave twice, but the extent to which you identify as the wave is the extent to which you can talk about death. But the extent to which you identify as the ocean, you're just talking about endless waving. So when I would do a funeral, well, I would be careful not to impose my theology on the mourners because who knows where people are. Mm. If asked, I would help people say, you know, understand that what they're grieving over is the loss of a form, but the reality that was your loved one is no less present than before. It's just not in that form. And you're always a part of that. It's always a part of you because we're all waves of the same ocean. But when I would teach this to kids, I used to try. Give each kid a piece of rope and I'd say, okay, tie a knot in the rope. So you get a piece of rope, now there's a knot in it. And we would have a discussion. What's the relationship of the knot to the rope. And each kid has her own piece of rope. And so she'd say, well, look, the knot is the rope. I said, yeah, right, okay. So then we tie another knot in the rope. So I got the same piece of rope, two knots. What's the relationship between the two knots? They're not identical. You can't tie the same knot twice, you know, to paraphrase Heraclitus. And so each knot is unique and distinct, a little bigger, a little smaller, tighter, looser, whatever it is but they're both equally the rope. So then I would go on a little bit longer, but eventually I'd say, okay, so we personalize the knots. So for example, this knot is, is Rami and this knot is my dad who's deceased. So I say, okay, let me untie my dad's knot because he's dead. So where did he go? The rope that was that knot is still right there in front of me. Mm. The connection that I had with that knot hasn't hasn't gone anywhere because we're both the rope. But I miss that knot, I miss the shape and all the things I associate with that shape. So I can grieve, I can mourn, I can feel that loss. And at the same time, realize there's no, no such senses, no, no such idea as loss because it's, it doesn't get, the rope isn't any more or any less when knots are, not, are knotted or unknotted. So, you know, I try to give the kids some insight into that. Whether they get it or not, you know, I have no idea. Oh, that's fantastic. When I do seminars before, long before COVID, <laughs> now sometimes I would use the analogy of a ice cube. Yeah, same idea. It melts back into water. Right. And if you apply heat, <laughs> it disappears. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, when people ask me to explain the Holy Trinity, you know, of course, why is a rabbi explaining the Holy Trinity of Christianity? I mean, the Holy Trinity, you know, uh, God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to me, it's um, God as Father is water, God as Son is ice, and Holy Spirit is steam. Mm. They're all H2O. So it's, it is three manifestings of a singular reality. Mm. So... If well, you're into this mystical metaphor stuff, you can make anything work. That's right. <laughs> As we wrap up here, where can people find you to come say hello on social media? My, my website is rabbirami.com, R-A-B-B-I-R-A-M-I.com. And my foundation that I co-direct is the One River Foundation, which is One River, O-N-E, One River Foundation.org. And you can find me at both places. The last question, what's the one word you would give to someone that wants to meet God slash find enlightenment? 
I would, the one word would be listen. Listen. Yeah. Rabbi, it's really been a pleasure talking to you today. Kevin, my pleasure. It was great. Thank you. Mm. That silence is so important. And I've been trying to stress that silence to you since episode number one. And here we are into <laughs> the mid-60s. And I hope that you are starting to really understand. Be sure to go get my meditations on Spotify or Apple or YouTube. They're there for you. Practice them. And if you're looking for more of my work, go to drreese.com. That's doctor spelled out. And I'll talk to you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese. If this episode opened your heart, feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, may peace be with you.